Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. With a beam of her soft smile she spake, turn thee and list, these eyes are not thy only paradise. I'm Ian Woodworth, and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today we are wrapping up the second portion of our planar travels through the outer planes of D&D cosmology. Today we are visiting the seven heavens of Mount Celestia, the plane of lawful good. Not eight, seven. Seven little munchkies hanging on a branch, eating lots of bananas on my grandfather's ranch. (laughs) If you've ever seen There's Something About Mary, you'll know what I'm talking about. (laughs) So this one got zero votes in the poll, and I'm a little bit disappointed that this one got zero votes in the poll, that nobody voted that they wanted us to go here. Is that a hint for us? I mean, is that like a view of where our soul should be? Perhaps. Well, I mean, we did get a resounding first place with chaotic good. Yeah, granted. So at least we are in the realm of good. I'll take it. And like we said, frat boy realm? Honestly, kind of sounds a little fun. Definitely chaotic. I could hang out there for a while. Yeah, front boy <laughs> realm with D&D Las Vegas. <laughs> so the seven heavens are, again, it's not something that comes up a lot, at least not in my gameplays that I've played through or seen. It's definitely not one of the flashier realms, though. I mean, it really could be. Again, going back in 5e, there's not a whole lot given on this realm. So now we are doing some of our further back deep dives into 2nd and 3rd edition, really kind of digging for that lore versus our last two with the Abyss and the Nine Hells, where there's like just here's all the information. This, again, is a bit more of a deep dive for us, which is kind of fun. There's that. So we get to flex some mental muscles here on this one a bit. Yeah, I really enjoyed doing the research on this one. There was a lot of stuff in here that I didn't know about that really lends itself to inclusion in a campaign. It really does. And it's one of those things where you just see a little bit on the surface and you keep brushing down and you keep brushing down. It's almost like, I mean, they call it the seven heavens for a reason. But what I kind of think is like when they found the old ruins of old Rome or even Troy, where they found just, oh, there's a level and they dug down a little further and oh, wait, there's another level. And then there was another level. It kind of became like that. A little bit, yeah. And one of the things that I really liked about Mount Celestia whenever I was reading into it, yeah, it doesn't have a lot in here to suggest having it as a place to have an adventure, but there is a lot in here to indicate that this would be an ideal place to have a destination to get to. Very much, yes. Or even a waypoint, like a strong, you are here, you end one hook, and you can start a second one super easy. Absolutely, Um, yeah. If you need a branch between campaigns, if you need, like, my players got to level five and we just finished the Horde of the Dragon Queen campaign and I don't know what to do next, you could easily do something like this and somehow get them to Celestia and just start them on a whole new path And it would be really easy just to pick up and go because there's a lot of content in here. And there's so much role play potential out of all of this stuff. It's not one of these planes where you're going to have lots of adventure opportunities, but you have a lot of player character growth opportunities here in the terms of role play. Every once in a while with Critical Role, you know, they'd have the shopping episode. You could kind of do that up here. And again, it's where those characters get a well-deserved rest and downtime. And if they are good player characters, maybe stop and reflect on their actions and what they've done and the choices they've made. Yeah. So on to a little bit about the plane itself. It is the home to the vast majority of the good aligned deities in D&D lore. It's this massive mountain rising from an infinite ocean of holy water. 
the water itself, despite it being called an ocean, is all fresh water. And because it's all holy water, it will burn fiends and undead that come into contact with it. Which, I mean, as just an aside, if you've been venturing in the hells or the abyss or any of the chaotic realms or anything like that, just banishing a character or teleporting a monster to a given realm, just teleporting him then into a giant sea of holy water just as a giant middle finger kind of putting salt into an open wound type thing i think would be kind of a bitter and salty take that i totally would do (laughs) in fifth edition the optional rule for mount celestia is that all good aligned creatures who come to this plane while they are here are constantly under the effects of the blessed spell which gives them an additional 1d4 on all attack rolls and saving throws nice Which, if they're coming here because they have been afflicted by some curse or some such, that little bit of extra blessing will make it easier for them to overcome whatever malady they have. Yeah, you're going to hit those DCs a whole lot easier. In addition, they also gain the effects of a lesser restoration spell at the end of each long rest that they spend on the plane. That's just nice. Just set up a hotel here and camp for a few weeks. Like I said, this is really a great place to stop and take a break. If you're good. If you're good. If you're not good, then all bets are off. Yeah. I mean, if you've got the edgy rogue that wants to be chaotic evil just because, then, well, they've made their choices. (laughs) Yeah. It takes a very special kind of game in order for a chaotic evil character to even run and not just completely trash the entire story. Granted. But that's another episode. We're not following that rabbit trail today. (laughs) So Mount Celestia has a lot of parallels in its structure to the Nine Hells, which is appropriate because both are based off of Dante's Divine Comedy. Whereas the Nine Hells are based on Inferno, the Seven Heavens of Celestia are based largely after Paradiso, which is the third book in the Divine Trilogy. Which actually, I never got around to reading it. I read the Inferno, I read Purgatorio, which was just kind of weird. And I was about ready to pick up Paradiso, and then Dune was on sale, and I chased that rabbit trail for <laughs> two years. And yeah. Yeah, I did thumb through it in preparation for this particular episode. So as proof that Mount Celestia is actually based off of Paradiso, while in Paradiso, Dante has nine levels of heaven as opposed to seven, the names for the layers of Mount Celestia coincide with the layers as ordered in Paradiso. So the first layer is Lunia. The first layer in Paradise is the moon. Then it's Mercury, Venus, the sun, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. And then you have the fixed stars and the primum mobile at the tippy-tippy top. So that would be the stars in the night sky. And I'm not entirely sure what the primum mobile is. That's kind of that layer over top of everything. Yeah, people generally call it the ether. If you look back in this, and again, another one of my historical rabbit trails I love chasing is alchemic lore. And so a lot of these follow the same layers as well. Okay. Now, the whole concept of seven heavens, it's an old religious concept. It goes all the way back into some Mesopotamian religions. You see it in the Judeo-Christian religion, so it is mentioned in Judaism and Islam and Christianity if you go back to the early, early texts. It is something that in modern times hasn't really been emphasized. They sort of congeal it all into one heaven afterlife. But you also see elements of this in Hinduism, where they have seven upper and seven lower realms. 
And the connection to Hinduism is actually kind of interesting because a lot of the old second edition realms and gods that are mentioned in the books are from the Vedic pantheon, which are based on the gods of Hinduism. A lot of them are either direct carbon copies or slightly renamed based on actual Hindu gods. I would really enjoy seeing a story done with a Hindi pantheon. I guess Hindi would be the correct, correct I word think for that. so. I if think that's so. wrong, I apologize. Please correct me so I can learn. No offense if I've used an inappropriate term. I think that's correct. But I would love to see a Hindu religion pantheon properly played either an entire party or by a character. I think would be just amazingly interesting. There was a homebrewed setting that I found on Reddit a while back that I'm going to try and find and link in the show notes that was actually an Indian Hinduism-based D&D 5e setting. Nice. And I sent it to a few of my friends who know much more about medieval Indian culture than me, and they all said, this is actually really well done. So I'm going to see if I can dig that out of my search history and include that in the show notes because it was actually really interesting. Like, I would really enjoy seeing some Hindu or some Sikh clerics. It would be freaking amazing. That would be fun. That would be really fun. But that's another story for another time. (laughs) All right. More rabbit trails. More rabbit trails. So like with the Nine Hells, each layer of Mount Celestia is infinite. Although each layer is one portion of the whole mountain, and you can see the whole mountain from wherever you happen to be on the plane. It's one of those metaphysical physics dilation kind of deals. It's one of those things where it's metaphysics, so it doesn't follow the laws of physics. Because it's religion, it's faith. Faith does not follow scientific logic. We'll go with that, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, just by its very definition. Plot point. Plot point. (laughs) (laughs) So each layer appears as its own mountain or series of mountains as you're ascending, which is kind of hard for me to wrap my brain around. See, I can totally see that. But we're, again, grew up in vastly different areas. Right. But I'm seeing this as... You know how in video games you have the big landscape rendered way off in the distance? That's kind of how I'm picturing it. Like you have the layer that you're on and the geography, the topography of the area where you are at. But you can still see the superstructure of the rest of the mountain sort of rendered in the background and always present. That's not too terribly far off. Now, out here, again, East Tennessee, Southwest Virginia, we're in the Appalachian Mountains, and they are very old. I mean, very, very old, like Pangea old. And so they have been weathered down considerably. Versus where I grew up, I grew up in the Sierra Nevadas. They are very fresh. They are very new mountain ranges. So hiking along the Sierra Nevadas, you could very easily be hiking along the mountain and look across the ridge and see the start of the next peak coming up. So again, being on a mountain and seeing the next mountain that's higher up is completely relatable for me. Versus, like I said, things are a lot more uniform in the Appalachian Mountains. Right. So whenever you're going through the different layers of Mount Celestia, you have a number of paths that lead through each layer that whenever you reach the end of them, it comes to a transition point where you would go to the next layer. But the paths themselves are not necessarily physical. This is also playing into that metaphysics, faith versus science 
kind of dichotomy because the paths that you travel in Mount Celestia are spiritual as well as physical. They had six different paths, each one of them tied to a different primary attribute. And once you started following that path, you would gain a plus one bonus to that attribute as long as you continued to follow the tenets of the path. And as you progressed along the path spiritually, you gained access to the higher levels of the mountain. Which is great, but even as you said, there's not a lot of areas to campaign here. This is one point where I strongly disagree because you could walk on these paths and basically you could make this path like a portal or a campaign and they have to reflect whatever. Like if it's a path of strength, then there's going to be a lot of strength checks and a lot of, you know, it could just be physical melee combat armed combat versus decks would be like a lot of climbing or a lot of you know acrobatics checks or jumping and you're gonna your characters are gonna have to use these skills or these attributes to progress through this path that takes them through celestia so even one of these paths they pick either as a party or individually however they want to do it really could be a storyline or a session within themselves yeah i can see that but the issue is the content of these paths doesn't really coincide one-to-one with the attribute that they give a bonus to. So, for example, one of the paths is the path of five virtues. So your tenets are honesty, charity, hope, moderation, and tolerance. And that gives you a plus one to strength. Do you see where I'm getting at here? Right. I still think you could use these, though. I mean, like, honesty, charity, hope, moderation, tolerance. So you would have these tenets woven in as your scenarios or your problems or your puzzles for your characters to solve. Okay. So, like, at some point, they would have to have tolerance. So, again, there would be probably, like, low food or a wintering type thing. Hope or charity, if they came across a person, maybe, like, a good Samaritan type thing. You know, are they going to try to pick this person up and carry him? Or are they going to try to build a litter? Or are they just going to leave the person on the side of the road because it's not their problem? You really could use these, and it would be very much story-driven. Again, a lot of role-play, not necessarily combat, but still a lot for your players to interact with. Yeah, and the neat thing is everyone's path is individual to them. So you could actually have a party of four or five people and each one of them has a different path. So each one interacts with their path differently. Exactly. And they all have to show some aspect of what path they want to walk for the party to advance. And if they don't, then either they don't get whatever extra attribute or maybe the party just gets stuck in this weird loop until they figure out they have to solve their puzzle the right way. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. All right. So Moving on to some of the magical effects of Mount Celestia. In 5th edition, there isn't really anything stated about, you know, how magic is affected one way or another, mainly because they haven't really touched on the Outer Realms hardly at all. Again, wizards, write us a book, please. (laughs) In 3rd edition, the only real thing was that evil or chaotic creatures took a charisma penalty while they were in Mount Celestia, doubled down for chaotic evil creatures. But in 2nd edition, there was a substantially more dynamic effect to the magic while you were within Mount Celestia. For starters, with conjuration spells, if you conjured a lawful or a good creature, it would always be obedient. You wouldn't ever have to roll to control it. Neutral creatures would get a save every single turn to see whether they obeyed you or not. And if you summoned a chaotic or evil creature, they could not be compelled to action whatsoever because they were so antithetical to the law and good of the realm. I could see that. Like I said, I would almost want to make the chaotic or evil creatures, like, not compelled to action. That means they're going to do their own thing. I would almost 
want to see him frozen in place, just kind of like shell-shocked almost. Yeah, well, I mean, they would go into that whole fight-or-flight self-preservation mode at that particular time because they are in a place that is very much hostile to their very existence. Right, and I guess at that point they would turn on their summoner very easily, particularly since they were chaotic and evil and brought into a very... Yeah, so I could see that as a punishment for bringing them into that realm. I could see that. With divination spells, divination spells always tell the truth, whether that truth is good or bad. However, you could trick this particular aspect. So if you had something like a filter of glibness or the glibness spell that allowed you to lie, if you spoke a lie while under that effect, the divination would register it as truth. Gotcha. So don't ask if these pants make me look fat because they probably do. With necromancy spells, because in 2nd edition, cure wounds and similar spells were properly, I might say, listed as necromancy spells as opposed to evocation spells, healing necromantic spells are twice as effective while within Mount Celestia. Spells like Hold Undead would affect twice as many targets, uh, so that you'd get twice as many hit dice worth of targets. I would personally rule that it would have the same effect on, say, a Cleric's Turn Undead ability. I can see that. Possibly even doubling the Destroy Undead challenge rating. That would be kind of awesome. And killing spells reversed their intended effects. So if you hit somebody with a power word kill, or if you hit them with an inflict wounds, or something of that nature, it would instead double the target's hit dice and give them a plus one AC. Nice. That's kind of awesome. With wild magic, wild magic was diminished on the plane because it is a plane of law. The effective spell level of any wild magic spell cast was reduced by two. So if you cast a fifth level wild magic spell, it would only come out as a third level spell. And you could not cast wild magic spells of 5th level or higher. So you couldn't use a 5th level or higher spell slot to actually cast a wild magic spell. So the sorcerers are going to have a bit of a rough time. But again, because you're on a plane of law, I can see that. I kind of like it. And then the final thing is elemental magic, which would be most of your evocation spells, especially for the wizard. Conjured elementals would always serve willingly without any chance of losing control of them. And destructive elemental spells, so things like creating a flood or the earthquake spell or firestorm or fireball, they all simply fail when you cast them. That's pretty brutal. I mean, depending on how you built your wizard or your sorcerer, that could really hamstring them really fast. So again, I like this because it makes them dip into that spell pool a little bit deeper and kind of figure out a way to work around those rules. And I think that causes a lot of growth for the actual player at the table as well as the PC character. So I'm good with that. Just judging off of the wording of it from the books, I would say that this is more of a spells which deal collateral damage. So like a fire bolt would still be okay because you are specifically targeting a specific creature. Yeah. But something like a fire ball that would deal area of effect damage. Or meteor storm. Or, yeah, or Meteor Swarm, or Cone of Cold, any of these that have the chance to affect the actual environment around the target, those would all fail. I would almost let them pass Cone of Cold if they could find a non-destructive reason for it, and maybe drop it like a level or two. Potentially, yeah. All right, so last little bit before we get into the actual layers. Like a sweet cake. Talk- <laughs> <laughs> 
talking about the petitioners, because we have been touching on the petitioners of every layer that we've come to, the petitioners of Mount Celestia become archons upon arrival. So they immediately become a creature that symbolizes the state of the realm. They all start as lantern archons, and then they fall into one of the six paths, and they follow their path, and once they have matured enough along their path, they get to ascend and take a new form. So as the archons grow on their path, they are promoted to new forms, and will go over those a little bit closer to the end. The exception to that rule is the souls of dwarves or halflings, because they are bound to the realms of Moradin and Yondala, the dwarven and halfling deities. Not Yolanda? No, it's not Yolanda. You, you <laughs> always said that with Magnus, and I always had to correct you. Yes, you did. It's Yondala, not Yolanda. <laughs> Anyway, let's get going. We're already a good ways in, and we haven't actually started talking about the layer yet, and we have a ton of stuff to cover. We really do. So buckle up, boys and girls. Let's go. All right. So the first layer is the Silver Heaven of Lunia. It is the bottom layer of the plane. It is the one that sits on the ocean of holy water. It borders the Astral Sea. All of the portals that come into Mount Celestia from the astral plane or whenever you just teleport in using like a plane shift spell, they all dump you out here in Lunia. Interestingly enough, you literally get dumped out in Lunia. You end up landing in the water whenever you teleport in. Right, so have your galoshes on because it's going to be white. There will be splashdown. But again, going back to that, like if you banish or teleport like an evil or chaotic creature here just because they're landing in a bath of holy water, just add insult to the injury. I can definitely see this as a way to get rid of some whites. Yeah, oh yeah. Some of the nastier corporeal undead that are a little bit too high in their CR for you to destroy undead with your cleric. So the entire mountain itself is surrounded by these smaller islands, each of which has its own citadel on it, where the Archons and the Souls of Paladins and such are basically garrisoned around the island, waiting for any incursion to fight them off. The waters of the sea are home to dolphins, some sea elves, and this race called the Zoveri. They're called the centaurs of the sea. Their lower body is that of an octopus instead of a horse. They're kind of cool. That is kind of really awesome. I haven't seen them outside of second edition. We need to port them because they need to be around all over the place. They're fun little guys. The major city within this layer is called Heart's Faith. It is an idealized city. The dogs don't bark, the children don't scream, and elders are respected. <laughs> Everywhere is window boxes, cobblestones, and sparkling fountains. No one locks their doors. No one bars their windows. It is just that open, trusting, everyone is in the community kind of town. For this, I get two mental pictures when I read all this. Either the idealized vacation spot in Italy, like Milan, where it's on the coast. Yes. And got, or something like Bora Bora in Polynesia. Kind of the same thing where everything's up. Just because it's very open, you know, a beautiful beautiful warm evening uh, versus Italy again it's going to be a lot denser more medieval you could go kind of either way with that but both of those those just where you go for that quote romantic summer vacation everything's just peaceful grandma's there with pie in the windowsill that kind of thing yeah I can definitely see that I'm very much picturing the more Italian myself but I can see where you're going with the other one so the town itself is built up the face of this very steep cliff on the shore of the ocean it has a central plaza down 
on the coast that floods in whenever the high tide comes in. The harbor of the town serves as a dock for ships and the Baleena, which are the big celestial whales that we were talking about a little bit in Elysium, and swimmers from the more chaotic upper plains. So we're talking Isgard, Elysium, Arborea, all of those. That's an impressive swim. I would say that the ocean here around the island probably connects to Asa, the layer yeah. in Arborea. It probably connects to the realm of Palor in Elysium. Almost definitely, yeah. You have to know where the transition points are, but I'm sure that there are transition points where you can travel from realm to realm from plane to plane within this ocean, mainly because you can actually charter passage on a ship from this dock to go to one of the other more chaotic good realms across the top. That'd be one top. of the best cruise lines ever. Oh my God, that'd be so much fun. And depending on how far you want to go, it costs more. Right, obviously. Obviously. So the portal to Excelsior, the gate town in the Outlands, is just offshore from this town. It's this little moat of light like a will-o'-wisp that just dances just above the water. And so you have to swim out to it and then reach up and grab it. And if you grab it, you're instantly bamfed to the top of this tower in the Outlands. Kind of creepy, but impressive. Kind of like the whole Harry Potter porky thing. Yeah. And then outside of this town, there is a divine realm on this layer as well, referred to as Nectar of Life. This is where one of the first instances of a Hindu god that you run into, one of the Vedic gods, Brihaspati. I'm probably butchering that, and I'm sorry. This is their realm, and they're the god who taught the other gods the power of prayer. They're a god of knowledge, and they taught the other good-aligned gods you know, how they could use prayer to draw power from their worshippers. So they pretty much changed the entire power structure of the cosmos by teaching the gods, you know... Your worshippers can be a power that believers. Source. Yeah, that's like, wow. That is so fundamental with so much, you know, religious lore. I mean, that in itself is... And the fact that he's on the bottom layer, too. I like it because it makes him very accessible. It seems like this deity would want to be because, again, he's Absolutely. trying to share power, trying to disperse it so others can have it. Very much like a Prometheus. Mm -hmm. so yeah, I could totally get that. So within the realm is the town of Omiriel. It is a town that is very well known throughout the multiverse for its bookbinding. And it is also the home to the Katsudharma, which is a massive library that is just filled with volumes of lore. Okay, I want to visit now. And the library is known for having very aggressive book buyers and collectors who are known to resort to violence if rare or alternate editions of books that they want have fallen into the hands of evil entities. They'll go out and kill somebody who is evil to recover a book. It's a weirdly good aligned Black Friday sale. <laughs> That's awesome. And again, this in its own right could be a lot of fun that something happened and you've got to get a book from a rival buyer. And hey, I've got some information or I've got a MacGuffin that you want. Go snatch this book for me because I can't really get my hands dirty for whatever reason. So go do it. I mean, that's a great little scenario just by itself. I like it. Or even just simplifying that the party needs some information. They know that this is where they can get the information, but they have to recover something to offer in trade for the information. Yeah. You know, they have to bring a book 
to the library in order to get information from the library. I like that. That sounds more like a candle keep type of thing, but still would work really well. Yeah. The other thing you could do, depending on where your party was with their campaign, is your party grabs a book or gets some information and a collector finds out your party has it. And now you've got like a recurring character trying to hunt down the party to get that book. I can definitely see that. This realm is also home to the Pinnacle of Indigo, which is a giant lapis lazuli tower. Ooh. Which is home to a wizard named Indigo. And both within the library in Katsudharma and within the Pinnacle of Indigo, there are portals that will take you into Sigil. So if you needed to get here from Sigil, there are entities with access to the other side of the portal that could get you in. And there are entities within this plane where if you needed to get back out to Sigil so that you could, say, go up the infinite staircase to a different specific plane, you could do that. Yeah, I would definitely do like a book heist or something through here and have you do some plane hopping would be a lot of fun. Yeah, this is all information coming from the second edition Planescape books. So that's why I have, there are portals here that go there all throughout all of this. Right. Because that is important. The one important NPC that they draw attention to for this layer is called Lamplighter. A Lamplighter is a Warden Archon who records all the activities of all of the creatures in Lumia. I like him. And he is also the individual who commands all of the Hound Archons and is the one who determines when a Lantern has attained enough progression along their path to become a Hound. So they are instrumental in determining that first step for the lanterns as they advance. He's like a weird lawful good Anubis. Kind of. And the thing is, Lamplighter isn't his actual name, but he won't give anyone his actual name because sometime in the way, way long ago, he was summoned by a wizard using his true name and was compelled to do some things that he really took issue with. And so once he was free of that service, he spent years scouring the archives of Lunia and striking all mention of his name from all of the records. This guy played with some fae. That's what happened. (laughs) It was actually a mortal wizard on the material plane. Okay. But it was somebody who had access to his true name and was able to compel him to do something that he really didn't want to do. That was part of his chastisement, part of his recompense, is he was making sure that as part of his penance, he took years to strike his name from all of the records so that it couldn't happen again. And that is something I definitely want to revisit with you in the future, coming up on our year episode, Blue. When we talked about our our sorcerer, our wizard, wizard. yeah, the uh, school of onomastics. Yeah, I really think that should be a class because, oh my god, that'd be amazing. And this would be a prime example of that. It's just the power of a name. All right, moving along to the second layer. The second layer is Mercuria, the Golden Heaven. Again, parallel to Mercury, the second heaven in paradise. This is a range of young mountains with soaring bare peaks and deep valleys. This is your Sierra Nevadas. Yes. These are the mountains that you, James, are familiar with. Correct. Though there are a number of plateaus on these mountains where the bulk of the settlements are. So they tend to settle on the flat tops of these plateaus and not down in the valleys because, again, they're very steep. They're very narrow and not very good for building anything. This layer is the armory and mustering grounds for the Seven Heavens. 
this is where the hounds and the wardens are constantly drilling and training. This is also where the bodies of noble fighters and paladins are brought and laid to rest. So there are actual physical remains of various noble and holy warriors that are interred in tombs and mausoleums on this lair. And they are remembered annually on what is called the Day of Memory, which is this feast day where everybody just comes out and recalls the tales and the uh, exploits of these great warriors of good. This layer is also the primary location for the Palace of Bahamut. It is built from the Platinum Dragon's Horde, so it is this massive gold palace with gemstone windows and walls of inlaid copper and ivory, and the floors are beaten mithril. That sounds absolutely amazing. Now, the weird thing is this is the primary place for the Palace Bomb. Yes. Because every once in a while, eh, it just goes away. I was getting to that. <laughs> so the Palace of Bahamut is the only realm on this plane that can bounce between layers of the mountain. And none of the other gods know how Bahamut does it. That's the big trick, is that none of the other gods know how he does it. Nobody knows how Bahamut do. How Bahamut do, but he can transport his palace. It's primarily on the second layer, but he can go from the first to the fourth layer. He can go that whole bottom half of the mountain, basically, at his whim. And there are constantly open portals that go from his palace to any of the four lower levels of the mountain. There is a portal that goes into the Astral Sea, and there's a portal that goes into the Plane of Air, because he has a palace on the Plane of Air as well. And they are constantly open. So... If you can get access to the temple, you can just walk through the portal and get to a different layer. The trick is proving yourself worthy enough to get in because the whole palace is guarded by his seven great golden worms. So they are the seven most powerful dragons in existence. That's a crazy set of guard dogs. Yeah. Now, we talk about his palace moving around and stuff. What if his palace is like a giant electron and it's in multiple places at once? I can see that. So you think, oh, look, the palace is here this time. Oh, it's not there that time. And it's like a whole probability thing. So it's kind of like just constantly shifting, kind of there, kind of not there. Very. Yeah, I can definitely see it being sort of a quantum mechanics sort of thing where it's there because you're observing it. Yeah. It is in all four layers at once. Yeah, it's here. So it obviously can't be there. But if I'm there, then it's obviously not over. So yeah, I like that. I can see that. Again, because we're playing with that whole faith versus science because there are a lot of aspects of Mount Celestia that don't make scientific sense because they're not supposed to. Well, again, even if you want to tie into like quantum mechanics, depending on how well-versed you are of physics, there's a lot like your quarks generally go by eight. There's a lot of weird symmetry, and they've tied those in with reference to help understand those things with things like the Zen Eightfold Path and Buddhism and things like that. So when you start hitting quantum mechanics, a lot of metaphysics does start kind of getting woven stuck in. It's kind of weird. It's kind of cool. It's kind of confusing at times, but they do start to weirdly mesh, if nothing else, to help your understanding of each. Yeah, okay. I will admit that I don't have that strong a grasp of quantum mechanics. Not that even people who do quantum mechanics have a huge, strong grasp of quantum mechanics. Yeah, the quote, I believe it was fine, but if you understand quantum mechanics, you don't understand quantum mechanics. Yes. <laughs> so the primary realm on this plane is called Goldfire. Goldfire is a realm of two of the Vedic sun deities, Mitra and Surya, who are both based off of Hindu gods. While within Goldfire, undead creatures take a cumulative 1d6 
damage every round they're exposed to light. Oh, wow. So it's 1d6 on the first turn, 2d6 on the second turn, 4d6 on the fourth turn, and on and on and on until they are crispy. I like it. Creatures can escape from the light to stop that damage, but if they do, they cease to exist. It is an effect called being eclipsed. So basically they are put into an extra planar stasis until the light hits them again. Okay. So like if you cast darkness, you have this bubble of darkness, but everything in there is just frozen in temporal stasis until the darkness expires or is burned away. While you're in this realm, you can buy wands of light. So they're these wands that shine with the warmth and light of actual true sunlight. And Great if you're running like a Curse of Strahd scenario. <laughs> absolutely. If you're doing vampires, if you're going into the Nine Hells, you know, any of that sort of thing. The wand will last for one day for every 10 gold that you spend on it. So you can theoretically dump a bunch of money on one of these rods and be able to get a long, long life out of it. I was going to say, it's kind of like one of those glow sticks you get when you go to like Disneyland. Yeah. So there are two major cities. Each one goes to one of the two very different sun gods. The first one is Pashrita, which is the home of Mitra. Mitra is the god of growth, warmth, and light. The structures are all built from white marble. And there is a portal to Bitopia set between two golden columns. And the columns are engraved with all of the signs, seals, and prophecies for every eclipse and solar conjunction known to the scholars and astrologers in Goldfire. I like it. And they constantly debate over the meaning and interpretation of these prophecies and like nothing more than dragging newcomers into the middle of their debates. Oh, absolutely. I love this place. (laughs) (laughs) And at the center of town is Mitra's Temple of the Golden Bull, which is this massive temple with a huge golden bull statue and it's festooned with all these silk banners. The other town is called Marashad. It's the home of Surya, who is the god of dawn and dusk. Surya is the god in charge of ensuring the transition of night to day and day to night. So all of the buildings within this town are stucco-walled and they have all of these colors of the sunrise and sunset. So all these yellows and purples and reds and grays. Like in this place too. The people here are described as being timid, meek, and friendly. So they're very helpful, I would assume, if you can actually get to talk to them because they're not very outgoing. So you would have to approach them. Right. But the primary landmark within this town is called the Crucible of Light. So the Crucible of Light is this crucible. It's shaped like a lotus and it's made out of pink marble. And creatures who enter the crucible are purged of all evil alignment effects. So that includes the curse effects of cursed items. That includes lycanthropy. That includes vampirism. That includes all of these other magical effects of evil origin. Evil creatures like demons or devils who are brought into the center of this crucible are instantly, completely, and utterly destroyed. The wording is, the trick is getting them into it. Right. (laughs) But it is also... I would think be a good way to destroy a truly evil artifact, something like the Book of Vile Darkness or the Hand or Eye of Vecna. Yes. And while, according to lore, these are artifacts that are of substantial power to where they would eventually reconstitute themselves from the ether, I would definitely see this as being a good way to get a millennia without this item. 
Now, this screams high-level campaign, but here's what I'm thinking, and I'm going to kind of steal an idea from Diablo 3. But as Medeus and his ilk get enough force that they can actually reach out and they start trying to scale the upper heavens, so, you know, they probably get through the first level and do okay. When they get to the second layer, they're going to have some things, but what if they start, like, resurrecting some of these fabled paladins and old warriors as undead warriors that are now serving as Medeus because they've been resurrected by evil necromancers and stuff? So you can try to get them to this crucible of light or try to get them into these cities or try to bottleneck them and somehow delay their march upward. I mean, this screams so much potential for a higher level, level 18, 19, 20, 20 plus. Yeah, that is definitely an epic level campaign sort of arc that you could do. And that would go back to, remember many episodes ago, I think we were talking about the astral plane and we were talking about potentially having some of the upper realms locked off to planar travel and you would have to figure out a way to get there circumventing going through the other planes and not coming in off of the astral sea. Oh, yeah. And one of the things would be that Asmodeus is launching an assault on Mount Celestia. So he's blocked off reinforcement points? Yeah, he's blocked the portals coming into Mount Celestia so that nobody can come in behind his army. I like it. Maybe the first way they notice, like, some of the portals and sigils stopped working properly. Or some of the doors on the infinite stairway closed. Oh, God, yeah, that'd be awesome. Oh, we gotta do this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That sounds like fun. Okay, moving along, because we're getting sidetracked again. Moving on to the third layer of Mount Celestia, Venya, or Venus, the Pearly Heaven. This is a layer of old, rounded mountains. This is your Appalachian Mountains right here. Correct, yes. It is a very agrarian sort of place. The hillsides have all been terraced and are being used for farming. Bare stone is very rare, but the mountains themselves are full of seams of coal and quarry stone yeah this is appalachia yeah (laughs) absolutely i think also some of the mountains in ireland and scotland which makes sense because that is actually an extension of the appalachian mountains if you follow the line of pangea you know under the atlantic ocean it comes back out up around there the scottish highlands and the mountainous regions of northern ireland those are still ostensibly the same mountain range yeah which is absolutely astounding Yes. So this layer is home to the Green Fields, which is the realm of Yondala and the rest of the Halfling Pantheon. So we don't go here. We're just going to skip over it and straight to the fourth one, right? Magnus isn't <laughs> going here. No. Magnus Mainly because Magnus is neutral evil and he is not getting into Mount Celestia. Well, only because he sold his soul. He didn't realize the effects of what that deal was going to cost him. But this particular region of the lair, the weather is always very mild. The harvests are frequent and bountiful. There are no predators on this lair. Because they'd eat all the halflings. You have trivial pest menaces like moles and rabbits and badgers. So things that are going to get into the crops and are going to take part of the crop, but the crop is so bountiful, so plentiful that they'll make the attempt to shoo them off, but they're not going to lose a crop because the rabbits got to it. Pretty much, if you watch the first 30 minutes of Lord of the Rings, it's here. (laughs) Yes, this is basically the Shire. Any spell that would benefit plants, so something like Wild Growth or Entangle or any of those sort of druid spells, all of the effects are doubled. And plants that are planted here reach maturity in half time. Nice. So I can definitely see this as being a place where if you needed to have a particular plant to reach maturity in order to get 
a specific ingredient to make a specific potion to beat the big bad guy and all you have are seeds guess where you're going yeah you're coming here and get some joe miracle girl on it absolutely and any wounds that are done to a petitioner of the realm are mirrored back on the attacker yeah i really don't like this place of course you don't (laughs) and to play further into the whole lord of the rings feel that you get out of this layer the realm is defended by a group of halfling elite warriors referred to as the Keepers. And they are responsible for maintaining the signal beacons along Mount Celestia to warn against incursions from Arcadia or the Astral Sea. So yes, the beacons are lit. Gondor calls for aid. Yes, and now you've got a bunch of halflings riding mastiffs. Though I do like the puppies, so I mean, at least they've got good pups. We'll go with that. (laughs) And the other notable location within this layer is called the Glass Tarn, which is this half-frozen mountain lake. And within this lake are a bunch of portals, one way leading out of Mount Celestia to other planes. There's a portal to the Astral Sea. There's a portal to the Plane of Water. There's a portal to the Well of Mimir in Isgard, which we're going to get to in a later episode, and also a location called the Norns Well in Outlands. So there's a lot of portals leading out of Mount Celestia in this lake. I like this. So going back to our proposed campaign, maybe a bunch of these halflings hit here and we're just going out, sending out the alarm to all the other realms, trying to call for aid as much as they can because other portals are out. So the portals in have been shut down, but the portals out, they haven't been able to close off yet. I can definitely see that as being how this came up on the radar of the multiverse, that something was going on. Yeah, I like that. And the bottom of this lake is supposedly full of treasures, if you can get to them, because it is insanely deep and not even the halfling petitioners of the plane have been able to reach the bottom of it yet okay or just because you think you're halfway there and all of a sudden you bam through a portal that too potentially and the lake itself is also the site for powerful prophecies clairvoyance and mystical trances but you have to be deemed worthy of being able to imbibe the water to enter the state to gain one of these visions oh it's hippie water yeah You haven't read the Words of Radiance Brandon Sanderson books yet, have you? I have not. There is a lake that I would almost swear he got from this. Because it is this mountain lake way up in the peaks where you go there to receive visions. So I would definitely say that the Glass Tarn is the inspiration for that. Okay, very reasonable. Or possibly vice versa, depending when the book was written. No, no, because that was in the second book, which I think was written in the mid-2000s. Okay, then yeah, because Gygax had no qualms about borrowing ideas. (laughs) <laughs> no, these books are, are fairly uh, modern. Fairly modern, yes. Okay. He just released book four of the series like last year. So anyway, continuing on, we're going to enter into Solania. So Sol, Sun, the fourth layer of Celestia, the Electrum Heaven. This is a realm filled with icebound glacial peaks and broad flat valleys. I definitely picture this as being more of a Swiss Alps kind of feel. Yeah, I can get that. There are two types of weather within this realm. You get impassable snow or knee-deep mud because you're not supposed to be traveling on the outside of the mountains here because this is where the dwarves go when they die. 
the mountains themselves are constantly racked with avalanches and rock slides. But within the mountains are very rich ore veins, and the mountain streams are filled with raw gems. I like it. Now, see, my heart would have been a dwarf, except I'm huge, so I obviously can't be a dwarf. So I have no idea where that, but yeah. I You're just of. a very big dwarf. That's what it is? Okay. <laughs> I mean, you got the beard and everything. Come I on. really do, yeah. So this is the layer that most of the petitioners get stuck at as they're advancing up the mountain. Because in order to pass from this layer to the next layer, they have to find Jazirian, who we talked about a little bit last week's episode. And we'll talk a little bit about a little later. But they have to find Jazirian and answer one of his riddles. And in order to find Jazirian, you have to reach a certain stage in your personal path to get to his realm. The thing about it is the portal to his realm is internal. It is within each petitioner. You have to know the secret to the secret noodle soup. (laughs) Something like that. (laughs) Again, going off of the metaphysics, the secret was within you the whole time. So they have to be able to reach a point where they look within to find this portal to reach Jazirian's realm in order to progress on up the mountain. I could see this being the home of a lot of monastic orders. Yes, this is the home of the first monastery of the Plains Militant, which is supposedly the source of all paladins' power. This is also from 2nd edition where we're still in the paladins have to be lawful good. Right. But yeah, this is where the monastery for this happens to be. It is a five-story tall building that is half a mile long. And aside from being the source from all paladins' powers, it is also the repository for all of their battle lore. I like it. So any of the great deeds of a paladin are recorded here. And they are maintained by a throne archon by the name of Jophile. Or Jophiel. Probably Jophiel. Just because the L, when you look at your Semitic languages, actually means of God. So when you see like Michael, Gabriel, Uriel, that L is actually one of the seven names of God. So that kind of helps with pronunciation. But when I was saying monastic traditions or monastic cultures, I was thinking like monk orders. So your monks, where they're going to try to find that inner core, that inner mystery and medium. I could see that really flourishing here. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially with the hardship of the actual layer itself. Yes. Because there is that sort of ascetic, deny the flesh to enlighten the soul. Yeah. So this layer would very easily play into that aspect. The big realm within this layer is Arachnor. Arachnor is where Moradin resides. Moradin is the Allfather. He is the primary deity of dwarves. He runs the Soul Forge, which it is actually described in the second edition book as a 40-foot block of mithril between a pool of molten soul fire and a wall of pure ice. Wow. And this is the workspace where Moradin forges the souls of each dwarf before it gets sent into the material plane. I like it. And it is also stated that if you are a planar traveler, you need to make sure you don't get too close because you might get snatched up and Morden won't pay attention and he will reshape you into a dwarven soul and send you back to the material plane to live your life as a dwarf. Oh my God. 
Okay. Wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. No, hear me out. Various petitioners coming through. Dwarven reincarnation. I can definitely see that, yeah. And so you got to figure out clan stories, or maybe you get reincarnated into a, like an enemy clan. Okay. I can kind of see that, yeah. There are several other locations within this realm because the bulk of the Dwarven Pantheon is also here with Moradin. The first one is Istor's Forge which is this city built around a core of white-hot lava that is used for smelting and smith work. Istor is actually not a god at this particular point. I think he became a god within the Dwarven Pantheon a little bit later on. Okay. But at this point, he is just a notable Dwarven soul that just runs the forge. Apprentice to Moradin. <laughs> Pretty much. He is known for his inspiring and long-winded rhetoric. He's very big on giving these big inspirational speeches. I'm still feeling a whole the white fruit thing going on. There is one called the Stonefall, which is built into the bottom of this very deep V-shaped valley. This is where masons and sculptors and quarrymen and miners go. And the entire area is full of carved stone with all of these stories depicting various aspects of dwarven history and myth statues of all of the dwarven saints different clan symbols and the histories of the different clans the histories of the rise of various different great dwarven kingdoms have you ever played or heard of a game called dwarf fortress i have heard of dwarf fortress because this is sounds very much like dwarf fortress i love dwarf fortress it's a great well where game. do you think dwarf fortress got the idea probably yeah <laughs> <laughs> there's another one called the rift I didn't get a good description on what it looks like, but it is basically a giant marketplace. This is where all of the stone and metal goods that the dwarves make are sold and traded. And the last location is called Baranar's Side. So Baranar is the revered mother. She is the wife of Morden. And the city is half exposed to the elements half buried within the mountain. And this is where all of the portals within this layer reside. There's a portal to Arcadia here where it goes into Klangedin's domain within Arcadia. It's basically Dwarven Valhalla. It's where the souls of Dwarven warriors go. And then all of that aside, the other very important location within this layer of Mount Celestia is called Ouroboros, the Gates of Wisdom. This is the realm of Jazirian, the great Kowadl god. As we mentioned in our Nine Hells episode, Jazirian, according to some myths, is the twin of Asmodeus. And at one point, they were in a circle around the plains, each one grabbing hold of the other's tail, so the, the Ouroboros aspect. And they had a conflict on the direction that life should take within the multiverse. They quarreled, and Jazirian ended up casting Asmodeus into Bator. And so now Jazirian is taking on the full aspect of the whole creation and the whole stability of the entire Outer Planes. Now, we talk about, you know, the portal being, quote, within you, Jator having, like, access to the higher planes, obviously a certain amount of knowledge, having this kind of all-encompassing, this Ouroboros thing, is kind of getting a whole full metal alchemist field in it. Yeah, I can see that. One of the aspects that they make sure to point out is that Jazirian is at once both male and female. And that, again, plays into the Asmodeus was cast down, and so Jazirian had to assume both roles. And so... Now Jazirian embodies both 
sides of the aspect. I like it. The concept of Jazirian's realm is that virtue untested is merely innocence. Okay. That is the tagline that appears multiple times when describing this realm. So even evil creatures are able to enter this realm through special portals because their evilness can be thwarted by properly testing the soul. That is the concept behind it. Okay, I like that. There is no material to this realm. You're just walking on open air. Again, getting that whole FMA walking through the gates feel. Yeah. And while you're within this realm, words are made flesh. So words are power. Okay, I have to stay out of here. (laughs) And the act of speech acts as a summoning. I absolutely have to stay out of here. Yes. So a couple of the examples that they give, if you cast the enthrall spell, you summon a host of trumpet archons. You basically summon your own backup singers. I like it. If you cast one of the speak with spells, you transform into the form of whatever it is you're trying to speak with. So if you cast speak with animals to talk to a squirrel, you're transformed into a squirrel for the entirety of that spell. Makes sense. I mean, you'd be able to talk to a squirrel. And then the last one, the big one is... If you cast Holy Word, you summon a diva who will be very peeved with you if you summoned them for no good reason. Probably yes. So yeah, that is what goes on here. So once you achieve a certain stage of enlightenment, I should say, you get summoned here by Jazirian. You have to answer their riddle, whatever the riddle ends up being. And if you succeed, then you get to pass on to the fifth layer of Mount Celestia. I just want to remind you something. You have to answer the riddle, but words become flesh. Yes. I never said it was easy. No, I know, but that could lead to so many different things. Oh my god, just as a DM, like if I had a ton of time, I would make the riddle some weird answer, because then you have to, again, whatever it is, you summon it, right? So it's the answer ice cream. Hey, and like, what would happen if you cast a wish spell here? I don't know. That's kind of crazy. I mean, I could really play with that just forever. <laughs> I'm definitely seeing this as, you haven't played Final Fantasy IV, right? I have not played four. no. Okay, so the protagonist of Final Fantasy IV is Cecil, who starts off as a Dark Knight and ends up becoming a paladin later on in the game. And the big thing whenever he becomes a paladin is he has to confront himself because he sees himself in a mirror. And the entire way to beat this fight is to not attack yourself, is to just sit there and allow it to happen. I can definitely see this as being that sort of an aspect say that they are the soul of a warrior and they are confronted with another warrior and the only way to succeed on their test is to not fight i would see that because again that goes through that whole purging the impurity or the evil out of self and you'd have to purge that impurity or whatever it was to get to the next level so that makes a lot of sense in a metaphysical redemption kind of way so yeah i like that all right moving along the fifth layer, Mercian or Mertian, it's Mars. Yeah. <laughs> the Platinum Heaven. So rather than just having normal mountains here, the layer is a broad sweeping plain with all of these various citadels built onto it and these mountain-sized black domes. So they're these just hemispheres of black stone. It's semi-terraformed Mars. The citadels are the marshalling grounds for paladins, sword archons, light asimon, divas, and other servants of ultimate law and good. So this is where the bulk of higher power level armies of good, this is where they muster, this is where they train. Whereas the second layer 
of Mount Celestia, that's where the grunt forces train. That's where the hounds and the wardens primarily would train their martial prowess. They are always busy, these citadels, and they're usually built near astral conduits and portals. So places where they can go out and strike quickly at a moment's notice to thwart evil wherever in the multiverse they need to. And then the citadels are made from the same slick black stone as the domes of these mountains. The largest citadel here is called Arvena and is home to the Hall of Heralds. So this is where the record keepers for the Order of the Plains Militant keep their archives. And this is where they keep the tally of the deeds of all of the Archons within the plane to show which ones are worthy of advancement. Okay. And while within Arvena, if you're training, you passively regain one hit point per hour. I like it. So one of the myths is that these dome mountains are the steps that the gods took when they first ascended Mount Celestia to reach Cronius, the illuminated heavens, which is the seventh layer, and that the domes are still imprinted by their footprints. Some of the domes have had steps carved into the side of them to make it a little bit easier to ascend them. Others, the tops of them can only be reached by flight. But the portals that lead to the sixth layer of Mount Celestia are at the tops of these dome mountains. So you have to be able to reach the top in order to advance to the next layer. Again, it's getting more and more difficult to get to the higher levels. So there's three major towns in this layer. The first is called Imperia, the City of Tempered Souls. It is built on the shores of a mountain lake at the lowest point of this plain. The city is best known for its healers and hospitals and for the healing fountains and curative waters of the lake. Again, if you're doing a bunch of martial training, you're going to kind of need that. Makes sense. So the waters can restore withered limbs, restore speech and sanity, and can restore drained character levels. That's impressive. Back in the day, whenever you had creatures like whites that could drain your actual character levels, this was a way that you could go and regain those character levels without having to grind all that experience points again. And apparently, if used in large quantities, it could heal the mind of evil and chaos. So... I guess it's kind of like a brainwashing soup. Okay. Of course, they wouldn't think of it that way, but it seems like it would be something that would actually gradually force an alignment shift. I could see that. I would almost stipulate the character would have to be willing. I could see that. Did you ever play the Knights of the Old Republic? No. Okay, so it's on Steam. It's an ancient game. I think it came out in like 2000. But, spoiler for Knights of the Old Republic, but in that game, you play a character and you go through and you're neutral and you're trying to find the big bad Sith guy, blah, blah, blah. And towards the end of it, you find out that there was a battle and they were trying a new Jedi ability that basically wiped the mind of the Sith Lord. So you, in fact, were the Sith Lord and it set you back to more or less a neutral Padawan. And you could choose which way you went as you played the game. So I could kind of see in it like that where it would heal the mind of evil and chaos and push you as far back as maybe a true neutral. Okay, I can see that. Okay, spoiler it over. And the city is also a great place to buy medicinal herbs, ointments, and salves. So this would be where you would go if you needed that magical treatment to cure that one thing. Like, we need a panacea for this problem. There's only one place in the multiverse where you can get the cure. Let's head up to Mount Celestia. Sigil is fresh sold out. The second city is called Rempa, uh, the city of the sands of time. Time flows very strangely here. It can go backwards, it can go forwards, it can go sideways. Okay. Because within this city is a portal to 
the demiplane of time. I like it. I'm getting a very Sands of Time, Bronze Dragonflight, WoW feel on this one. Yeah. It was crafted by a rogue Modron Secundus. Oh my. So for those of you who are paying attention in our Mechanist episode, the Secundus are the next two tippy top of the Modrons right under the Primus. Yeah, one of them went rogue, was corrupted in their terms towards good. And so he left Mechanus and came to Mount Celestia. I like it. And he brought a bunch of leftover parts with him from Mechanus, and he grabbed some of the Morningstar Essence from Goldfire and some blocks of pure ice from Arachnor, and he built a series of portals. So it starts here. It goes from Mount Celestia to the Astral Plane to the Material Plane to the Ethereal Plane to the Demiplane of Time. All right. It's a series of portals, and because he just sort of threw something together, it leaks a little bit. Oops. <laughs> so that's why time does weird things in and around this city. One of the things that you can purchase within this town are called a death clock. Not like the metal band. Aw, I was excited for half a second. So death clocks measure the amount of time someone has left to live. Snazzy. They are typically only sold to the person whose lifespan they measure. But they are instruments that are intended to hasten someone's redemption. Kind of light a fire under their ass? Yeah. You got two weeks left. (laughs) You've got this much time to change your ways. Yeah, I was going to say, that'd be kind of like a blessing and a curse both. Because you start fixating on those last couple days. And then the third city is called Soked Hazi, the City of Swords. It's a massive fortress city. It's got four layers of walls, and the land between each set of walls is terraced and farmed. Welcome to Titan. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, it sounds like Attack on Titan. The ruler of this city is called Bahram, the Conquering and Triumphant Fire. He is a sword archon. That's a great name. And yeah. And the city has a rather massive army, including a thousand sword archons and seven thousand seven hundred seventy-seven warden archons. I like it. And they have many trophies from their conflicts with the forces of Bator and Mechanus, including the artifacts the Horn of the Third Pit. I wasn't able to actually find anything on that, but there's that, there's the skull standard of Dis. Damn. And the golden gear of Immobilis. Wow. So yeah, they are quite successful in the war effort. My poor Modrons. And they occasionally will venture into Arcadia and Bitopia looking for recruits. They don't typically find any, but the locals in these planes appreciate their combat skills because they basically take care of any ills that ail them. It's that, and it's kind of like, you know, when WWE comes to town and you're all going to sit there and watch everybody slam each other around for a day or two and you'll cheer and then, okay, well, we're not joining, but that was a good show. (laughs) I like it. All right, continuing on to the sixth layer. The sixth and seventh layers don't really have a whole lot to them, so we're going to go through them real quick. The sixth layer is called Jovar the Glistening Heaven. Jovar, Jove, Jupiter. It is also known as the Heaven of Jewels. So it consists of a giant celestial vault whose floor and ceilings are lined with rubies and garnets that just pulse this healthy hearthfire glow. I like it. Yoink. (laughs) At the heart of this realm is the heavenly city called Yetzira. Yetzira is where most of the Archons within Mount Celestia reside. It is a seven-tiered ziggurat. Each tier is referred to as a terrace. It is visible from 100 miles away. Snazzy. And it constantly glows with this sparkling light. Okay. At the summit of the ziggurat is the Bridge of Al-Sahal, which is this radiant 
rainbow bridge, if you will, that leads into the seventh heaven. The bridge itself is guarded by a solar named Zerona, who makes sure that you don't get in if you're not worthy to get in. My, 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 my Zerona. <laughs> yeah, no, they just kicked me out right there. That's fine. It was totally worth it. <laughs> Back to Lunio with you. <laughs> so on the fourth terrace is the Radiant Arsenal, which is where all of the weapons used to arm the Celestial Host are housed. The most important items are hidden away in vaults because their power would Ark of the Covenant melt any mortal that laid eyes on them. This is kind of like Odin's vault in the beginning of the first Thor movie where they have the uh, Tesseract. Yes, and many of the items contain the essences of Archons who failed to attain the seventh heaven. So they decided to imbue weapons designed to protect Mount Celestia. So things like Defender Swords and Frost Blades, these are all going to be sentient weapons that bear the souls of Archons. The city is actively defended by 12,000 Sword Archons. That's a lot of them. You're not putting them all on the table, just don't try. One, that's a lot of printing. Don't do it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And the walls are all manned by Warden Archons, so there's more than even that. And the city also has an angelic defender, a Solar named Arethiel. And many of the Archons see him as an ideal form, and they follow him in a loose fraternity called the Sunblinded. Again, a snazzy name. I like it. And there are several instances of his defending the city, one of which, and I really wish that they had gone into more detail on this, he protected the city from a Modron march. The hell? Yeah, I don't know how you do that. That's probably where a lot of those trinkets from the other people came up with. That's impressive. Because, you know, the Great Modron march goes through all of the planes. And so this is something that I don't know if maybe he like moved the city out of the path or if he was able to, you know, do some sort of planar distortion to where they ended up marching around the city. I don't know. It doesn't go into detail. That's literally all that they say about it. We have to see if we can find that maybe at Old Dragon Magazine or something. I'm sure it's out there somewhere. But anyway, that about does it for the sixth layer. The seventh layer is called Cronius. Cronius is the illuminated heaven, the seventh layer of Mount Celestia. It is the pinnacle of Mount Celestia. It is the point of no return because only those who are pure in their long goodness can ever enter. And aside from the most powerful archons, it's a one-way trip. If you go up, your essence is absorbed into the plane and you're not coming back. You go poof. Yes. And so that's literally all that there is to say about that because you don't go there. I like it. Okay, done and done. Nobody ever goes in. Nobody ever comes out. Nobody ever comes out. (laughs) It is Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. I like it. I've got the golden ticket. Anyway, talk a little bit about some of the creatures here at the very end before we wrap up. Archons are obviously the most notable creature within Mount Celestia. We keep mentioning Archons. There are seven types of Archons. And actually, someone that I follow on Instagram, I think is Spectre Creations, today, as of recording this, released a translation of all of the Archons to 5th edition. Very nice. Only one of them is free. All the rest of them are behind the paywall of their first tier of Patreon. So I haven't seen them yet. But the one that is available is the Trumpet Archon. And it's actually really well done. So I'll make sure to link that as well. So each Archon of at least Hound form has some manner of metal 
accoutrement as part of their body. It could be bracers, it could be greaves, it could be a breastplate, it could be a helmet, it could be some combination thereof. It is uniform across all archons of that type, and the metal that the item is made from signifies their rank. So it starts off as lead, and then it progresses up to tin, brass, bronze, silver, gold, platinum. Once they reach platinum on their current form, whenever they advance again, they move up to the next form, and then their metal items drop back to lead. And it's sort of this visual representation of where they are on their path. It's like merit badges. Kind of, yes. So the first one is the Lantern Archon. This is just what every soul that comes into Mount Celestia that isn't a dwarf or halfling sent up to the dwarf or halfling realm, this is what they come in as. They're these little helpful balls of light. They are the most common type of Archon. They are, by their very nature, very helpful, very outgoing. I mean, they're the naive embodiment of lawful good. I think the Wisps from Warcraft. Yes, that is actually a pretty good depiction. And their only purpose is to advance sufficiently to become Hound Archons. That is their only goal and purpose. So once they become Hound Archons, Hound Archons are these powerfully built humanoids with dog heads. They are typically passive. They will only fight to defend Mount Celestia, to defend themselves, or to defend the innocent against attackers. They can also shapeshift at will into the shape of any dog or wolf. Okay. And they have a telepathic link at all times to 100 lantern archons, which enables them to very quickly spread the word if they need to send out a warning. Right. Think Centurion. (laughs) Kind of, yeah. The next rank up are the Warden Archons. Warden Archons are large humanoids, and they have the heads and arms of bears. I like it. This is Baristotle. Yes, this is Baristotle. (laughs) They typically converse telepathically, but they can actually just straight up talk to bears because they're half bear. They like to play stupid to lull their opponents into a false sense of superiority, like they're just some big dumb animal until they can get close enough and they bear hug them to death and they defend portals that link the different layers of mount celestia and they keep lantern archons from going too far up the mountain that is their whole purpose okay i absolutely love these baristotles they're my favorite so far and they can also cast any divination spell of their choice once per day so any divination at all they can cast all of them once each per day just because. And they are herbivores, and they will eat a lot. Okay, you lost me at herbivore, but you kind of won me back with eating a lot. So, I mix. To the point where they straight up eat trees. Okay. Which is really weird. <laughs> but some people suspect that the reason for that is because once they advance to sword archons, they don't eat anymore. Gotcha. Sword archons just straight up don't eat. They look like normal humanoids, except that Instead of arms, they have wings. Okay. They're capable of a very powerful dive bomb attack. In 2nd edition, it was a 2d10 damage per hit. Wow. And they can cast spells as a 15th level priest, which would be a 15th level cleric. They're stout. Next up on the hierarchy are the Trumpet Archons. They look like the Avariel, which are the winged elves, except that they're a little more stocky and a little less live because they do follow a more human form than an elven form they carry a silver trumpet that whenever they blow it in second edition at least 
any creature that heard it that wasn't specifically exempted by the trumpet archon would have to make a save. And if they failed their save, they were paralyzed for 1d4 rounds. Okay. These are kind of feeling like the uh, Trumpeters of God's Wrath in the Book of Revelation. Yeah. I mean, that's probably where the inspiration came from. They typically avoid violence but whenever they have to their trumpets transform into plus three silver swords just because just because and if a trumpet is ever stolen from an archon it just turns into a useless block of lead okay i like it they are capable of casting spells as a 17th level cleric their main duty is to escort the souls of the valorous dead to mount celestia so in second edition they're going to be going into the fugue plane to find all of these valorous souls and escort them into mount celestia okay so i could see these guys like again as a quick scenario type thing trying to interdict so you've got some souls in the fugue plane and maybe there's like a bunch of devils sitting there trying to blackmail or deal with certain select souls and they're going to try to intermingle and intercept so they can collect said souls to mount celestia because the devils don't they get like a 10-day span to try to bargain with them correct If they don't decide to move on. Right. So again, that kind of has, if you've seen the beginning or read the beginning of the Spawn comics or the Spawn book, kind of has that feel to it as well. Because again, he was a special forces military person. He made a deal with the devil to be able to come back. So I could kind of see that. I would definitely see them as being the sort of individuals who would go through the fugue plane and try to round up the souls as quickly as possible. Yes. Because once the soul has decided to move on to Mount Celestia, the devils can't have them. Right. Because once they've made that decision, they move on. Right. So their job is to find the souls so that they will move on. But I could see like a soul that died in the middle of combat. So he is so fixated on what it was fighting or what its mission was. And then the devils are trying to bargain with it. And the archons are trying to come to get there before they can complete a bargain or a deal or something along those lines. Yeah, I can see that. This is the only archon where one of their number commands all of the rest of them this lord of heralds israfel assigns duties to the other trumpet archons it is an oddball outside of the normal archon power structure okay and fun fact they consume only mead and apparently it is some super stout stuff makes dwarven spirits look like water (laughs) next up are the throne archons or these gold-skinned humanoids clad in radiant breastplates they prefer to avoid combat and instead command their subordinates to fight on their behalf okay but they all carry plus five vorpal longswords just when they absolutely gotta they can cast any spell from the wizard or cleric spell list as an 18th level caster and most of them govern the towns and realms of the plane okay And then finally, at the tippy top of the hierarchy are the Tome Archons. These are winged humanoids with hawk heads. So kind of think Horus from the Egyptian pantheon, but with wings. There are only seven Tome Archons at any one time because there are only seven Tomes at any one time. And each Archon governs one of the seven layers of Mount Celestia. And when it has to, it can summon at will 1,000 Lantern Archons. 500 Hound Archons, 250 Warden Archons, or 125 Sword Archons to its defense. That's not a shabby defense. Oh, and it can also cast Cleric Spells as a 20th level Cleric. Just because. Just because. Okay. And it shoots rays of light out of its fingers. I like it. That deal, I think, 2d10 radiant damage. Yeah. We're just going to melt the face. They're face melters. Done and done. Yes. (laughs) So there's your seven types of Archons. 
Then there are the Zoveri, which I talked about a little bit earlier. They are native to the Seas of Lunia. They are very passive creatures. They are not very good at combat because they don't really fight very often. If a traveler comes into the plane who is not expecting for a splashdown, their whole thing is they keep people from drowning. So they will patrol around the outside of all of these portals that come into the plane to catch people who drop in unprepared and make sure that they don't drown. Good deal. They can speak any language that is spoken by a good aligned creature, and their voice carries for 500 feet underwater. I like it. Good heralds. Because their lower half is an octopus, they can create an ink blot as a distraction to escape if they need to. And it functions as a 15-foot radius darkness spell. Now, I'm really proud about this because when we made our Terror War a few weeks back, our creature was able to create an ink blot. And we said basically the ink blot would do exactly this. So yeah, that put us right on the money with how that was supposed to work. So I was really happy with that. Yeah. And the last little interesting bit is that Four Zoveri working together can sort of do this dance in a ring, this very complicated dance that will cast Conjure Water Elemental. So yeah, they can summon water elementals at will. I like it. So I mean, they're not defenseless, so that's good. And then the last real notable creature that I wanted to touch on here in Mount Celestia are called the Noctrals. Noctrals are these five foot tall sentient owls. I love them. They are keepers of knowledge. They will willingly give out any information that they have that they are confident won't benefit the cause of evil. So how many licks will it take to get to the center of a Tetsu Robot? This would be the one to ask. <laughs> They're probably going to be found in and around the library there on the first layer. That makes total sense, yeah. They avoid combat whenever possible, but they're capable fighters when the need arises because they're just giant owls. They are capable of assessing threats intelligently, so they're not going to just charge in where it's not going to be a clearly advantageous fight for them. They will instead fly off, gather up a bunch of Archons, and then come back and take care of it. As it should be. I like these things a lot. They can cast the spell Legend Lore three times a day. Nice. Which I think, is that an 8th level spell or a ninth level spell? I, I can't remember. I'm not 100% sure, but I know it's up. It's a pretty high level spell. Yeah. But they can tell you Basically anything about anything, gotcha. if needed. They can speak telepathically with any creature within a mile. And when they're speaking telepathically, they automatically have detect lies up. Ooh. So they can automatically detect anything that's a lie whenever they're speaking telepathically. They are all masters of history, but also have an 80% chance of also being masters of another given topic, such as mathematics, astrology, or magic. I like these so far. But they're still predators. They're still owls. So they only hunt when they need to eat, and they only hunt unintelligent creatures. So one of the examples that they give in the books is it's not uncommon for a noctual to interrupt a long-winded lecture to pounce on a nearby rabbit and then continue the lecture as he's eating. I like these things. I'm kind of thinking like a giant Archimedes from Sword and Stone. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Just a big, grumpy, that's exactly what I want. Yes, <laughs> so yeah, these are the individuals that you go to whenever you absolutely have to figure out some bit of lore about something. Because they're probably working in that library, the Katsudharma. Probably at least some of them are working in this library of all of the lore. Some of them are probably working as the collectors for the library. Yeah, I could see that. I could definitely see these giant owls going to other planes to claim these rare books to bring back for the library. Yeah, I can definitely see using them as a plot device in a campaign. 
All right. I think that's everything. So thank you everyone for putting up with another fairly long episode. Next week, we are going to be having our one year anniversary episode, which it's is going Tarascmus. to be, it's Tarascmus. It's going to be an actual play episode with Dr. Mary Crowell, who wrote our intro. Well, she wrote the song that we use as an intro. She yes. didn't write it <laughs> as an intro. We're not that important. As well as C.R. Rowanson, the magic engineer, and Mitchell Wallace from Penny for a Tale, who did the necrobiotic game that we talked about a few weeks ago. Yeah, so we're super excited. We are super excited for that. Grab your Tarascomus hats, grab some popcorn. It's going to be fun. Eat some cake. Yes, Tarascomus cake. Tarascomus is for cake. Or cake is for Tarascomus. Both. <laughs> yes, both. And then we're going to do a couple of non-planar episodes after that just to sort of recover <laughs> from our travels. And then we'll dive back in. We still have a poll going right now. The first poll is going to be done by the time this episode comes out. But the second poll, the follow-up poll for which plane we're going to go to next is going to be up on our Twitter account. So please do go over there at UCT Homebrew and vote on which plane you want to see us go into next. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas for future episodes or feedback from previous episodes, please send us an email at undercommontaste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. I'm still doing the Shakespeare and Insult page-a-day calendar-inspired roleplay prompts six days a week. They go up on the Twitter account, and then they get cross-posted to the Instagram and Facebook accounts at undercommontaste. We now have a Discord that is open to everybody. The link for the Discord is in the show notes, so please come over and talk with us. We also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash undercommontaste, where we recently restructured and lowered the prices on our higher tiers. So if you want to help support the show financially, please come over and become a patron. Absolutely. You can find our podcast wherever you're listening to your podcast. As always, give us a rate and review. It helps increase our visibility and it helps let us know what you want to hear more of. So thanks once more for joining us. It's been a wonderful year. We're going to see you in the actual play next week. Happy gaming. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Undercommon Taste. If you enjoyed what you heard, please pass it along to your friends. If you have comments, suggestions, or ideas, you can email them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts, and we would greatly appreciate any likes, ratings, and comments you could provide. Find us on social media. We're at undercommontaste on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and on Twitter at the handle at UCT Homebrew. If you would like to help support the show financially, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash undercommontaste. Our theme is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find her online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmaryccrowell. Thanks again for listening, and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.